Welcome to the Westside Personalized Podcast, where real educators share their classroom-tested, learner-approved personalization practices. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and are able to find a few valuable takeaways from the podcast. And so without further ado, let's go to the pod! Well, Andrew Easton here, and welcome back to the Westside Personalized Podcast. And we are once again in the science department at Westside High School. I actually just got a chance to record a podcast earlier this week uh, with Angela Bergman up here uh, regarding the personalized practices that are going on within this department. Uh, and I'm very excited today uh, to welcome Michael Frieda to the podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to getting a chance to chat a little bit about a personalized learning unit that you put together and it was really kind of a, a six month almost process in the making when we kind of think back to, I want to say it was like March through May that we sort of talked about this uh, last school year and, and here we just got kind of wrapped up with the implementation of it now early or late October. So uh, start with you though, Michael, and just kind of ask that for the people listening in, can you give a little background, kind of history for yourself in education, the courses you've taught, etc.? Absolutely. Hey everybody, I'm Michael Frieda, as Andrew said, and I'm a science teacher here at Westside High School, and I've been a teacher here for 16 years. This is my 16th year in education. I came to education as a second career. I was in the hard sciences before I decided to switch over to education. And I had a huge breadth of experience in the sciences before I got into education, and that has sort of influenced the sorts of courses that I've taught and been able to teach here at Westside High School. So here at Westside, I've taught general biology, I've taught earth space science, I've taught ecology, and I've taught natural science the entire 16 years that I've been here, which is our, uh, what I would call a survey course in the sciences that really helps to increase kids' engagement in science, really help them to see some success in science, with the goal of encouraging them to take some even more advanced electives a little later on. And so uh, right now I'm teaching natural science and ecology. Ecology is where all my training was. I'm a biologist by training. My wife is as well. And uh, ecology is where my focus in the hard sciences was before I became a high school teacher. And so I get to sort of draw on kind of the hardcore content that got me into the sciences in the first place. But I've also been very grateful to really learn how to be an effective educator by working with kids who really have some extra needs and who need that extra support. And I'm getting the human psychology side of things, too. (laughs) And you are, you do a phenomenal job. Uh, I know we got a chance to talk a little bit about some of the gamification efforts that you've put together in the past. Uh, Michael and I actually co-led a PLC choice group last year on games and education, uh, some game-based learning conversations there, and uh, it's just been great getting a chance to know Michael in a professional sense and, and through kind of our shared efforts towards trying to make class fun uh, right. and more engaging and that being said, we got a chance to collaborate a little bit on this personalized learning unit. And so uh, do you want to kind of start off just maybe saying a little bit about why you chose this particular uh, content uh, and time and course with your natural sciences to be the place you wanted to extend your practices in that personalized vein? Yeah, so this section that I targeted for a big personalized learning unit for this year was our play tectonics section for our science course, Natural Science. And this is something that many of us are very excited about and and charged about play tectonics because it is a science that has really, really evolved and developed with technology. And it's about the place we live in the universe and how that place changes. Some really monumental big picture science. The trouble with it is that it's very, very abstract. 
And one of the big challenges with abstract ideas to, to get students to understand it is that we want to try to give them an anchor, a realistic anchor that they can latch onto that will help them to understand these big picture ideas that are happening with this. And for a very, very long time, this was the unit, so to speak, in the natural science course that I've always been seeking more for. That Every year, I always target a couple units that I really want to put a tremendous amount of effort to improve. My course is different every single year that I run it. We keep the best of what we have at the time, but we always try to continue to switch things up, move things around, try to be mindful of, of what the sequence and scope of everything is that we're doing while still staying within the state standards. And this was the unit w which was kind of my holy grail unit in terms of wanting <laughs> to work on Thorn in the side it. a little bit. Maybe. Yeah, thorn in the <gasps> side. <laughs> right. Just make this thing work in the way which I know it's capable of because it's exciting content. Right, yeah. it is. But but at the same time, we got to meet students where they are, not mm -hmm. where we wish they were. And I mean, as an English teacher, I'm sure that you can relate to that. Like you, we want kids to be passionate about reading. We want kids to be passionate about writing, and we got to work really hard to find things that they want to write about, find things right. that they want to read. And so there's a lot of commonalities between all the content areas. We want students to have ownership over what they're learning. And doing this teacher-centered for many years, and it's not, it wasn't exclusively teacher-centered. We had a lot of activities in which students could make choices, could engage, could investigate on their own. In the sciences, we sort of go for this model of uh, exploration, vocabulary enhancement, mm -hmm. that we don't want to be giving students vocabulary up front because we don't want that vocabulary to serve as a barrier to their understanding, especially of abstract ideas. And right. so there were certainly exploratory aspects of the prior unit, but it's also very heavily vocabulary laden and the standards expect you to have that vocabulary convergent divergent transform plate boundaries but we also want to make it real for the kids and so part of the reason why I targeted this for a personalized learning section is that I knew that this would give me an opportunity to not only allow students to be able to make some choices about how they're learning the, these ideas but that could potentially open up some time for us to get a lot more realistic aspects of the ideas in there, like how do earthquakes affect people? How do volcanic eruptions affect people? And the way the course had been organized up until this point, I felt that there was a little bit of a prohibition for me to be able to do that and still meet the spirit of the standards effectively. Mm -hmm. And so... Another big part of the reason why I chose personalized learning emphasis for this is that I felt that it allowed me to garner efficiency and use of time that was maybe uh, limited when you only have a single plan. Yeah. The beauty of opening things up to 150 different plans is that when kids get to pick the plan, they're usually much more efficient in terms of how they execute their plan. And so while it takes a huge amount of effort up front to work to develop it and get everything going, once kids have a choice, they're much less hesitant to dive into the ideas. They go right into it. Mm -hmm. They know what's expected of them. They know that they have a choice to be able to do that. And so we're not just going to let that time whittle away. We're, we're not just going to lose that time. That was an opportunity. I, I think that I was able to squeeze a whole extra uh, section of class out of this as a result of students being able to pick their own way of approaching this. And with that extra class, we kept all of our hands-on activities that we've had in the past. But what I've added is 
information about the history of the volcanic eruption of Vesuvius in Pompeii, which for many people is like the holy grail of archaeology <laughs> and anthropology for, for us to be able to study this preserved Roman civilization that was wiped out in AD 79. And then to bring it into more modern times, if kids prefer that instead, I also had information about uh, the Fukushima nuclear power plant that was damaged by the earthquake near Japan in 2011. And so mm -hmm. they got to to pick across a wide range of history as well. For me, I was like, oh, I just want you to pick some history. It didn't matter to me whether it was ancient history or modern history. Sure. The key for me is that I was able to bring in some even more uh, interesting history of science that I'd always wanted to be part of the section, but I wasn't always feeling that I could bring in because I also believe very much so that understanding the history of science is a vehicle to understanding the continually changing nature of science and that we can't exclude history from the scientific process because we got to know how we got from A to Z. Wow. I love, okay, in the, in the midst of all that, because I'm over here just like processing everything that, and, and love it, like passion with it all. And I love, I've learned a lot about plate tectonics too from our collaboration with all this. It's been great. Uh, agency is what personalized learning is all about. We're just trying to foster that as best we can. Uh, within our learners so that they can take things, make it ideal and more efficient uh, and do it on their own. And so part of agency for us is is ownership, which you talked about. And I do think that it's hard to have ownership of anything when you don't have choice. If you don't have choice, then like, how can you say, well, I'm, I'm going to uh, make this my own in any capacity. And so like, like you said, it sounds like in the past, you certainly have had choice in other facets uh, of what's going on. And so w during our personal learning training, we talk about things like well, you can have choice in content, instruction, process, which is, I love that. That's kind of pretty open uh, interpretation there of the, the learning process. It covers so many different things. Product, learning space. Uh, and it sounds like in the midst of that, that for this particular one, uh, this particular unit, that instruction was a place that you wanted to provide additional additional choices to your yes. learners to further differentiate, if you would, or, or, or to embed more choice options, right. which does lead to... Increased engagement, which does lead to students be able to set their own objective and goal for the day. And it's really fun for me because I know uh, some students that I had had a chance to work with in the past had said things like, you know, what? I typically show up for class and in the first two slides, the instructor tells me what my objective for the day is, right? Which is great. We're being clear about what we're going to do. But the, the same student said, I love it because I show up to class and I don't wonder what are we doing today because I know. Because I know, like, this is going to be the next, like, step or this is where I'm at in the process. I'm going to be able to sit down and set my own agenda uh, and, and execute that. And it's great to hear that, that it freed up enough time to make for enrichment opportunities uh, that you would not have otherwise been able to get to. That's there, fantastic. Yeah, and there, Love are, it. there are a couple big things that I noticed in, in executing this process. I mean, obviously, personalized learning isn't a new concept in education no. at all. It's been, a, I mean, we've known that student ownership, you know, has been important. It's always been a question of like, well, how can we be really effective in making sure that we set up classrooms uh, that do that? And there are a couple things that I noticed, particularly in, in this unit, that I had put a lot of time into and that I really, really really wanted to make it something that, that would give students an opportunity. Uh, first thing that I noticed, and I know that you noticed this as well, while we were walking around the room. Yeah, because I got is, a chance to come in and yeah, observe. Thank you exactly. for that. Exactly, and way, you're always welcome fun. in my classroom. And so one of the big things that we noticed is students chose every option. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I oh, and before we go too f- yeah. much further, what options just so people listen in sort of know? Sure. So we did we did differentiated instruction in a sense, um, but you had a lot of choices and how did that play out? And, and then we kind of get and while I was executing it, I realized that there was actually more choice here than the way that I originally organized <laughs> it in my brain. In that yeah. the main choices that I had worked with were they could uh, watch videos on YouTube, mm-hmm. which you I had pre-selected. Make. Okay, yeah, that I had. And this is a challenge, I'm sure, in all content areas of finding something that is developmentally appropriate and has appropriate vocabulary and mm-hmm. doesn't have any misconceptions and is still engaging for the kids, sure. you know. Sure. So that process, you know, takes some time. Uh, I meet, I shot videos myself, which mm-hmm. that's something that we spent uh, half a day in September yeah. in advance of the unit, making sure that everything was ready to go. And then there was some editing that you helped me out with. And then when there was some editing that I did, I took this as an opportunity to use Edpuzzle and to incorporate some additional technology in there, incorporating some, some questions into the videos. The third option, which... I realized really soon after I started pitching it to kids, because you know, you gotta make the pitch at the beginning of any section. <laughs> Absolutely. You gotta explain to them why they should care. It is our responsibility to explain to students why they should, why they might want to choose to care about what's happening yeah. in the classroom. Or to choose a particular option. Right. Yeah. And so I had framed it as reading. But what I recognized is that not every student approaches every possible reading avenue, so to speak, in the exact same way. So I would usually pitch it as uh, two choices within a choice, so to speak, that they could read an article online or they could read the textbook. Okay. And immediately the first change that I've made to this unit for next year is I'm replacing that or with an and. And the way that I'm going to pitch it to them, it's going to be replaced with an and or. Okay. okay. Because I viewed them as choosing one of those things, but it became very clear to them that they, I don't want them to be frustrated. They don't want to be frustrated. Mm-hmm. And not every reading source is perfect either, of course. Yeah. And so they would read a little bit of an online article and they'd say to themselves, I feel like I'm missing a piece here. And I'm like, okay, read a little bit from the textbook. Maybe that will fill in the blanks. And they're like, oh, this did. Okay. This yeah. was helpful. Well, and so and I'm going to interject here to yeah. say, is this not the process that we go through as educators? Right. Right? This is what we do. We, we spend all this time, typically, in a tradition. And I've done it. I, I say this because I have done this time and time again. We're getting ready for this unit. I'm going to read the text that I'm going through. I'm going to read some analysis. I'm going to get on to Notes even and see what the heck that says there. And then I'm going to read, you know, um, articles. And, and you just, you, and you do. You synthesize across all of those. And you take pieces you like, get rid of others that you don't. And arrive at an understanding for yourself that is fairly rich, uh, and but usually we curate that and just sort of bundle it in this way that it that doesn't ask students to go through that messy work uh, that is sort of rewarding and does round out your thinking and makes the experience unique to you. And it's it also becomes less authoritative and and more of a growth partnership mindset. I think exploratory. Well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what I started saying to kids was, okay, this option number three. It's really up to three options depending upon how you want to do it. You could read the article alone. You could read the textbook alone. You could combine the two of them and draw pieces from each one. Mm -hmm. I say what I always say to them. I never want you to be frustrated. And so if you feel like you're getting frustrated with a resource, there's no reason why you have to keep pounding away at it when there's something that might be able to help you. And I... I could sort of see the body language change in the classroom when they're like, oh, I can do this more than one way, yeah. you know? And, and seeing that was really great. Um, another thing that really hit me hard on this that I think is 
something that is always important for us as educators from a growth perspective to be aware of is to keep our humility as high as we possibly can. And the way that it manifests itself in these sort of experiences is the unfair assumptions that we make about how we think a student is going to learn best. Yes. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what we think so long as the student makes a choice and gets there. Mm -hmm. And part of that humble experience means I might have an idea in my head of what John is going to select, but when you actually do this process, it is a real education for the teacher seeing how differently students will select choices based upon what your expectations might be. Mm -hmm. And if you interpret that in the rawest, most growth-minded way possible, I think it really should make us question, or not question, it should really make us not question how much students need to be part of the learning process, right. that they need to be part of the decision-making process, that we can have the best intentions for our assumptions in the world, but intentions aren't going to get it done. Mm -hmm. It's whatever the reality is for a student that's going to get it done. And that means that this is a scary situation for a lot of teachers because, of course, it does require you to surrender some of the control that you might be used to. Mm -hmm. And part of surrendering the control is being open to the idea that with a little bit of surrender, it can maybe unlock a whole lot of amazing. Yeah. Oh, amen to all this, I would say, because, uh, and to your point, it is very comfortable for, let's say you have a 60-minute time frame, to say, okay, I, I'm going to lecture for 20 minutes, and I'm going to own that time, and I'm going to control it, and you will get the information that I know you need to get because I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to give you this activity that will take you 30 minutes, and I, it's all the same problems, and I know the answer to all of those problems, and I can answer any question pertaining to those problems, and I can just feel confident you know, in that you'll have 10 minutes maybe where you have to troubleshoot and, and transition uh, to play with, but everything else is pretty set. Uh, and we've like I've done this. I've done this. This is the only reason I bring this up. Where you try to make it so simple that you can't mess up this process, but it gets so mind-numbingly boring. So simple that you do mess up. That they mess up because it's just <laughs> yeah. not engaging anymore. There's right. no exploration. There's no questioning. There's no ownership of anything. You're just lining it up and, and trying to to run through assembly line to arrive at an understanding of something rather than. Uh, giving people the opportunity to sort of grow in that. And, and if you look at the personalized learning stages, uh, which mm -hmm. is another piece that I heard you kind of talk about here, so this is sort of an and to the point I was just making, it, it involves from choice as it pertains like differentiation is stage one. Stage two is where it becomes collaborative. And the student says, I like this choice. I prefer this. Thank you for making this an option. However, could we also, and through that push-pull feedback, we just call it voice in our training, uh, it's so rich, the, the dialogue and the, the professional growth for the educator, because now all of a sudden you go, oh, I, I would never have thought to do it that way. But if that works for you, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Please pursue that. Uh, and so that was kind of your experience is what I'm yeah. hearing, I guess. The, the thought of, well, we're going to keep everybody in their own like lane, but maybe they want the video and the reading. and maybe, Or maybe they want this video and this video right. and this video. Yeah, and starting to really 
uh, a la carte, I guess. Here's my hypothesis, and this is a secondary hypothesis, and I consider myself lucky in that I've been able to work at all levels in education. Mm -hmm. I'm able to teach elementary and middle school teachers at the University of Nebraska-Omaha, and so I've learned a lot from them, of course, but I'm a secondary educator, and, mm -hmm. and I think one of the challenges for secondary educators is that one of our general defining factors is that we are passionate about content. For a lot of us, that's how we came into education, that we were passionate about ideas and we wanted to share ideas with people. Mm -hmm. Now, we always want to think about also what sort of biases do we carry as a result of that focus. Yeah. And one of the biases in a traditional education model is that I have ideas and I want you to be passionate about those ideas so it becomes a matter of me transferring said ideas to you. And from a factory model standpoint, the way public schools originally developed in this in this uh, country, that makes sense. Yeah. Now we're and, running and, and far afield from that. Makes now. sense because that was our own experience. That was our own experience, and there's nothing wrong with our experiences. Agreed. Our experiences are our experiences. And I would but, put a disclaimer too to say when we talk personalized learning, we still say traditional practices. We never say throw everything out and do 100 percent right. personalized all of the time. So right. you're right. Sorry, continue. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that transitioning to the next level of being a guide in the classroom really means asking ourselves what are our own biases, truly confronting our own biases, and then saying, okay, so I have this bias. What am I going to do here to try to make sure that that bias doesn't act as a liability for my students? Mm -hmm. Some students are going to be like me and prefer like a rote lecture style. I mean, that's me when I was a learner back in the classroom. Sure. I, I, I would venture to say that I'd be, I'm a very different learner now than when I was in the classroom because I've seen what's possible. Mm -hmm. And so from a, if we're transitioning from a traditional educational model, which works for some but not all students, to a progressive education model, which I believe very strongly works for all students and mm -hmm. doesn't require us to compromise any students who prefer a traditional model at all, because that's embedded within the personalized choice. Yes. It, yeah. You don't lose that possibility. It's still there. But what if our modus operandum was to make sure everybody has access first rather than here's some access. I hope you can access it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. in other words, hoping isn't going to get us anywhere. We want to be sure. And yeah. personalized learning, although scary when you are first designing units for it, the dividends I think that it can pay out at the end in terms of opening up possibilities so that all students can be involved is something that is going to be a, a positive journey for everybody. Yeah, it's worth it's worth the the investment. Absolutely, and it's... I I'm with my own experience sort of mirrored exactly what you talked about too. As far as I got to a place when I was at Westside designing one of my first personal learning units, I said, well, if we provide written and if we provide video and some audio and some other materials, then I don't have to lecture. And students don't like lecturing, and so I kind of implemented things. And one of the first kickbacks I got was, well, I want, to, I want you to lecture to me. And I was like, I thought, like, students, there are pockets of students in every class that complain about just listening to lectures all day that it's not engaging. And then you get those folks that ask for it because that is how they learn best. And so then I brought that back in, and it's interesting, too, to watch, or it was interesting to watch some of those students then go, okay, this is great, but I never really had the opportunity to learn from video before. So I kind of need both of these, or maybe yeah. I, I prefer this, and then I, I just want a forum to ask questions afterwards. And, and it really made them, 
much more sensitive to the to their preferred, more ideal structure for obtaining new information, and that's all in that whole instruction process portion of things. So, you know, sometimes people get so bent with personalized learning they think it's just choice in product, choice in product. Choice. Can, how many how many options can we give you for an assignment? Uh, which is great. I mean, sure. that certainly is personalized learning, but it, it is also these things that we're talking about. You know, there's a wide body of research on student disposition and motivation. And the aspect, I think, of, of motivation that is really interesting here is the segment of students who are more failure avoidant rather than success oriented. And there are a lot of students, uh, especially students who have had a lot of success with school. I mean, we want to reach all students. We want to reach students who have maybe become a little bit disenfranchised with school. We want to reach our high-performing students as well. But are they really performing at the level that they are really capable of is a question that we have to ask. Or are they so just for, great at school? <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I'm getting at yes. here, that this is a great opportunity for students who are really good at playing school that are maybe more so failure avoidant than success oriented that in their minds framing school is, as a series of tasks that you complete that you check off a series of boxes and that if everything is neatly written and the grammar and the spelling is okay it doesn't really matter what I say <laughs> well guess what it does matter what you say yeah and so when when you were when you were just talking about your experience, that's what really popped into my head. That for students who are good at playing school, this is a really great opportunity to encourage them to differentiate their own experience with school as well. That no, school doesn't have to be about just a teacher lecturing and you sitting there. They may have never considered that before, which isn't. That isn't wrong that they may have thought that. They maybe just have not had the experience. And to mm -hmm. give them the possibility of thinking that there's more than one way to learn effectively and that learning is not just checking boxes, that you have to be directly involved with it, right. there's all sorts of possibilities for influencing student disposition and motivation here. Oh, and I, I would transition that too. There's been three or four podcasts, and it's starting to come up more and more frequently, I think, as we as a district are evolving with this work a little bit. Uh, that it focused in on the idea that by uh, equipping students with a variety of strategies with which to go about learning, that ultimately it's helping learners realize, and this is maybe the opposite end of the population, you know, you're, you're talking about some of those that are disenfranchised that don't really appreciate you know, education, that it's not necessarily all the time about how smart you are, it's just finding the right way in which to help you out, and, and we... Uh, in our training, reference sometimes the idea of like number talks, where if I ask you to you know multiply eighteen times five, right? So someone might say, "Well, uh, I can solve that because I know that you know five times ten is fifty, and five times eight is forty, and I put those together and it's ninety. And if I tell you that's the only way to do that, then someone that would nat might naturally look at it and go, "Well, you could double the five and then take the eighteen and cut it in half, and nine times ten is ninety, and there's my answer." That person would feel lost and frustrated. When they, they clearly had an opportunity and a way to arrive at the very same answer. And I think any math teacher would tell you that that wide breadth of different ways of solving a problem is what true mathematical thinking is. Yes, certainly we can teach a student a series of steps to follow and they they wrote follow the steps and they arrive at an answer but I don't know a single math teacher in this building who doesn't want students to craft true aspects of mathematical thinking, strategic right. thinking, cost-benefit analysis, all those great aspects of critical thinking that we know and love. Yeah, and if you, and, but, and if you couldn't arrive at that answer, gosh, how frustrating would, would this right. whole experience be? Uh, and being able to then instead figure that stuff out. And a lot of these skills, 
are not content area specific. And so by learning, just as you said, well, I learned best from videos and reading, kind of complementing one another. Now when I go to English class or I go to history, you know, like those, those are places too where I need to consider that's how I learn best. So how do I start to lean upon those resources to make that happen? I think the way that our cultural landscape looks right now, there's a lot of negativity out there surrounding technology. And I don't think that that negativity, I, I don't think that there aren't things that we shouldn't be cautious about. Certainly. But I think in terms from from a learning standpoint, culturally, we haven't stopped learning. We're just learning in ways that are not as part of the mainstream as it, as it perhaps it used to be in the past. When you ask people what the number one site that they visit on a daily basis, it's almost always YouTube. Right. Is what most people are viewing. And I, there's nothing inherently a, wrong with just that. Just a stat drop. Uh, I looked into the other day and there are 300 hours of content created just on YouTube every minute. Right. Now, like you said, a lot of garbage <laughs> probably in there or things that maybe aren't even based in any sort of truth or fact. But but the wealth of resources that are there, once you kind of mine through those, is pretty expansive. I think that there is a, and I think that the evidence would bear this out, that there's a universal human desire to learn. And that many, many people love to learn. Not everybody consumes learning in the same way. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, the way that our cultural landscape is changing is that a lot of the learning is shifting to video. So why fight it? Yeah. Right. Well, and so to kind of get back to rubber meets the road too. So these video pieces met a menu and plates and lunch and dinner and <coughs> things that we sort of had as a structure for the way in which I loved our, our side yes. conversation. Yes. We, we kind of got into a lot of great areas. Let's so we'll get down of, to the brass we'll tacks. Bring it back to the person who's trying to take this and implement. Um, so how did that menu piece allow for the things we're talking about to happen in your class. Yeah, so nuts and bolts, the way that I'm going to reach the students that I have in my natural science class is I want to show them that there is a pathway to success and that there's a series of steps that they can follow and that they have freedom within those steps as to how they can investigate, explore whatever the idea is that they're exploring at a time. But I wanted to break it down into more bite-sized chunks because we know that chunking is a huge benefit to all students, whether right. they are in a special education program or not. Chunking is a benefit to all learners. Yeah, and I'll and even so, drop and say video content. It's better to make yeah shorter videos versus long. Like you want to chunk those things by topic and by and in the smallest micro learning opportunity you can get. So I started by asking myself, well, really, what are the ways in which if we imagine this set of standards stacking together with the foundation of a pyramid and building up to the apex of the pyramid where we're getting more application, you know, higher Bloom's taxonomy or Webb's depth of knowledge level. Yeah. What are we starting with and what are we building towards? Well, I said to myself, well, we got to start with what we've learned about the earth itself and the basics of how it works. So that becomes my breakfast of a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, those three segments were each an 80-minute section of my class because I have my class organized into 80-minute sections. So breakfast is 80 minutes, lunch is 80 minutes, dinner is 80 minutes. Breakfast is the beginning of the day, right? Mm -hmm. And so the beginning of our exploration into our changing earth with plate tectonics is an investigation of uh, the earth itself. So our breakfast menu was divided into three plates, approximately 20 minutes. Now, I deliberately did this so that the their experience would be less than 20 minutes so that they had a little bit of time to reflect, and I felt that mm -hmm. that worked out really, really well. Great. Um, so our three plates were what is the structure of the earth itself, 
second plate, what sort of rules have we used that can help us to build on the radioactive dating that we had done earlier in the year, which radioactive dating is arguably a primary foundational measurement tool that scientists have to investigate the universe. Mm -hmm. Radioactive dating allows us to investigate the universe very precisely in terms of the age of items so we can start piecing together the puzzle of how the universe forms. Well, another aspect of dating is relative dating, where we are just comparing things to each other. It's a big aspect of Earth science. So second plate is relative dating and how we can use that to understand the nature of things. And then finally, the third plate of breakfast is us figuring out how fluids behave when exposed to heat and less heat, which is a big part of magma cycling underneath the surface of the Earth as part of this. Mm -hmm. And so breakfast was all about what are the basics of understanding how the Earth works. Mm -hmm. We move on to lunch. Lunch is more about, okay, what are the consequences of the plates on the surface of the Earth moving around? What are all the different ways in which they can happen? So there is a plate for divergent plate boundaries when they are separating from each other. There's a plate for convergent plate boundaries when they are moving together. And there's a plate for transform plate boundaries in which they are sliding past each other quickly. And so that defines our lunch section. And then the dinner section is where, as I described earlier, I really tried to bring in this nature of how can we get the nature of science, uh, the history of science into this. And so really dinner became... You have an opportunity to investigate the history of this if you feel like you have a strong understanding of what's come before or if you would like to enhance what you learned before by using graham crackers and frosting to simulate the different plate motions or to investigate patterns of earthquakes on the surface of the earth and determining how that uh, relates to the profile of how these plates are moving around. So they not only had an opportunity to have different styles of learning, like with videos and reading, etc., uh, hands-on sort of things, but they also had a choice in that section, a choice within a choice, so to speak, mm -hmm. of whether they wanted to continue to enhance to understand the core that had happened before better, or whether they wanted to branch off into the history of how this relates to human beings as a species on this planet. That's awesome. And I love the, I love some of the, like, we're talking plates for me and plate tectonics. Right. right. There is a pun there, everyone. <laughs> it's definitely built into that intentionally. Uh, and, and in the midst of all that, I guess then I would just sort of say, and we've kind of gotten to it, I think, already. But what would you say are kind of your two or three takeaways, whether that be both in a get, like a positive, and maybe even in a potential revisions for next time or things that you didn't sort of anticipate? We've gotten to some of this already, but if there's any sort of reflective piece that you, you would like to impart, I guess, having gone through this. I think the biggest positive takeaway for me is how quickly they embraced it. And if there's any verification that we're making uh we're, that we're doing a great job in the classroom it's that students are quick to jump on what the task is and of course there's a lot of setup that's involved with that setting up expectations projecting excitement i mean all the normal mm -hmm. things that we would normally do to get them, and, and i you watched know. you do those in the day that i came in to observe too kind of yeah Kind of everybody's appetite wet at the start by kind of saying, here's what you're going to do and here's the steps. And certainly through your own enthusiasm and encouragement, uh, sure. there were there were some here's why in a way that, that really made that something tangible, as you mentioned, like for them to say like, well, I, I, this skill matters for me to like 
be able to develop this. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, and, and then I, I think the, the biggest thing that I'm always aware of with these, which sometimes surprises me, and, and I, I was definitely surprised at, uh, at the beginning here, is just imagining, like we always should do with the ICOR process. Okay, as part of yeah. the ICOR process with information, questions, activities, response, that response is how we're going to respond to problems. The very first problem that arose for this, and I'm so glad that it arose in the first section because then I was able to make immediate changes yeah. with it, is that I thought I was prepped for the technology, uh, not with students who didn't have technology piece of it, but I wasn't as fully prepped as I thought I was initially in that my very first class, more than half of my kids didn't have their computer for some reason or another. Oh, yeah. And that was actually, for the first time in a long time, a huge number of kids that were technology-less. Now, what I recognized in, in situ, which, you know, yay, you know, when you gain more experience in education, you don't necessarily know any more than a new teacher does. Mm -hmm. You become a lot swifter at responding to things because you've seen it before. Yeah. So shout out to all new teachers in the audience. You, you don't, you, you may know just as much as, as your colleagues do. It's just a question of how swiftly you react to things can yeah. be a bit of a difference. And you can learn to react swiftly early on in your career, you know? And so my reaction to it was swift and merciless. Merciless is not the quite the right word for it. But I recognized right sure. out of the gate that, you know what, this becomes an issue of where we're going to print out some articles so that there's a multiple choice within the backups that we have. Yeah. I didn't want my backup to just be textbook. I wanted to be choices within the technology backups as well. And so I printed out a bunch of the articles for them so that they had a choice between the reading material as well. And so it, there were there was no barriers for technology, but you just got to always be mindful about what those potential barriers will be and try to get those responses going in advance. Mm -hmm. If something's going to be a disaster, you're part of making a decision as to whether something is a disaster. It doesn't have to be a disaster. If you label it a disaster, maybe it will be. If you don't label it a disaster and take immediate action, well, then it doesn't have to be a disaster. And so mm -hmm. you just exercising your own agency and your own locus of control, don't fix it tomorrow. Don't fix it after breakfast. What's a way that you could fix it now? Mm -hmm. And that's true whether we're talking about personalized learning or any other <laughs> aspect of what we do in the profession, of course. But Absolutely. Somewhere in there I was thinking of the quote I heard recently where it says, "It's not you never lose or you never fail. It's only you either win or, or you learn, right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and learn to respond quickly in those moments. Well, you know, I think that kind of covers just a broad range of uh, the things you did in your classroom uh, of really personalized learning. Uh, I, I've really been energized by our conversation today Good. towards uh, just thinking about this work in theory and also in just sort of its uh, impact on students. And so thank you so much for all your effort, I would say, on the front end of being able to put in some time to design this over the summer and, and in a half day that we had a chance to work together. Uh, and then... Yeah, spending some time today to share, which is really important, I think, for helping other people uh, extend this work and, and really provide those learning experiences for their students also. And I want to thank you too, Andrew, because what you and your colleagues are doing in the I3 program uh, for us here at Westside is really pushing us to improve and become better. And that is something that I think is uh, has always been a valuable part of the district. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always energizing to me to know that there are people at the district leadership level who are energizing teachers to continue to improve and providing the support to do that. And I felt so supported through this process. So thank you. 
Awesome. That that makes me feel really happy because that is certainly something that we uh, we work really hard at. And as practitioners ourselves, you know, I mean, we, we're everyone in our role is not even two years removed from the classroom, and so we we certainly wanted to say, well, what we kind of wanted, you know, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's good feedback, and I appreciate that. So thank you for your time, and I'm sure as you continue with your personal practices, we might get you back on the air again. Thanks, Andrew. Well, that's a wrap on another great episode. For more information or to contact us directly, you can email our team at personalized.learning at westside66.net. As always, thanks for tuning in and learning from the Westside Personalized Podcast.